0: First reading comes from the book of First Kings in the Old Testament. The book of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings tells the story of the monarchy, that the rising for King Saul and the role of, of the prophet Samuel, um, and then how David ascends to the throne. And after David dies, which is the beginning of First Kings, um, we have this story about his successor, his son Solomon. So let us listen that we may hear the Word of God. I'm going to read today verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 3 through uh, 15. I will be reading the remainder of the verses in this, during the sermon itself. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, only he sacrificed incense at the high places. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for this was the principal high place, Solomon used to offer thousands of burnt offerings at the altar. In Gibeon at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream, by night. And God said, "Ask what I should give you." And Solomon said, "You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, my Father David, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness and an uprightness of heart toward you, and you have kept for him." this great steadfast love, and you have given him a son to sit on the throne today. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in this high place after my father David, though I am only a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in, and your servant is in the midst of people whom you have chosen, a great people so numerous they cannot be numbered or counted, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people and to discern between good and evil, for who can govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or for the life of your enemies, but you have asked for understanding to discern what is right, I now do according to your word. Indeed, I give you a wise and discerning mind. No one like you has been before you, and no one will rise after you. I give you also what you have not asked for, both riches and honor all your life. No other king shall compare with you. If you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your life. Then Solomon awoke. It had been a dream. He came to Jerusalem, where he stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. He offered up burnt offerings and offerings of well-being and provided a feast for all his servants. The word of the Lord. The second reading this morning comes from the book of Acts in the 27th chapter. It tells the story of, part of the story of Paul as he is being transported from uh, Jerusalem and uh, Caesarea Philippi toward Rome, where he will be tried before Caesar. Let us listen that we may hear. When a moderate south wind began to blow, they thought they could achieve their purpose. So they weighed anchor and they began to sail past Crete, close to the shore. But soon a violent wind, called the nor'easter, rushed down from Crete. Since the ship was caught up and could not be turned head on into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven. By running under the lee of a small island called Kata, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After hoisting up They took measures to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run onto citrus, they lowered the sea anchor and so were driven. We were beginning, we were being pounded by the storm so violently that on the next day they began to overthrow, they began to throw cargo overboard. And on the third day, with their own hands, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. With neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest raged, All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul then stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and thereby avoided this damage and loss. I urge you now to keep your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only for your ship. For last night there stood by me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before the emperor, and indeed God has granted safety to all those who are sailing with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have told you. But we will have to to run aground on some island. And the fourteenth night had come, as we were drifting across the Sea of Adria, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took soundings and found twenty fathoms. A little further, they took soundings again and found fifteen fathoms. Fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. But when the sailors tried to escape from the ship and lowered their boat into the sea on the pretext of putting out more anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. The word of the Lord. We are called to pray. Sometimes our prayers come spontaneously. They are just utterances that spring forth from the depth of our soul. And then sometimes we face those situations and circumstances as Pope Francis did this week as he went to the Auschwitz concentration camp memorial, and we are left speechless. We have no words. And sometimes we look for the words that others have composed as a way of helping us guide and shape our prayer life. We pray in many different ways. Today, in this sequence of sermons about prayer, we are looking at the serenity prayer and how that may shape our prayer life and where it comes from and where it might resonate with our biblical witness and with our faith life that we share. You no doubt know the prayer. You have said it already this morning. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. This prayer has been used by presidents and preachers, by saints and sinners, and all those in between. It is shared very often in Alcoholics Anonymous groups, as well as other anonymous groups of sorts. The Serenity Prayer was composed by Reinhold Niebuhr in the 1930s. He began his ministry as the pastor of a German evangelical Protestant church in Detroit in 1915. When he arrived at that church, the church had 66 members. He stayed as their pastor until 1928, and then when he left, there were over 700 members. During that time, a lot changed, not just who attended the church and how how large its outreach efforts were. In 1915, when he arrived, there was animosity towards Germans in our nation because there was a great war going on in Europe. And even though the United States was not involved in the war at that time, it did become that involved. And there was animus towards people who spoke German. And in that church, the services themselves were in German until 1919. Also during that time in the 19-teens and 20s, the automobile industry was just coming into full flower. It was a robust economic engine, yet there was turmoil with labor relations between the industrialist and the workers. And Niebuhr took the side of the workers quite plainly, and he called to task Henry Ford in particular and other industrialists. Something happened in that church in that time. I wish I knew more of the ministry and the life of that church. Even though the time that Niebuhr served that church was before he composed this prayer, I think it can be seen that this congregation was living in the midst of change. They needed courage. And knowing the difference between what was not to change and what could change was the wisdom that they called upon. God. God. Grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change. In the very first church I served, a very wise man said to me, the only thing that doesn't change, Joel, is the fact that change is going to happen. You've heard that probably. And I may have heard it somewhere along the lines, but the way he said it to me and the occasion he said it to me has been indelibly marked in my mind. The only thing that changes, the only thing that doesn't change, is the need that we have to change. Change happens. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, said to them, Rejoice in the Lord, always. Again, I say, rejoice. Always rejoice in the Lord. And then, a few verses later, he writes, Don't worry about anything. Some versions... Put it this way, have no anxiety. Part of human nature, I think, is that when we are told not to do something, we are most likely to do it, right? So when we're told not to worry, so often we worry. We are concerned. We do have anxiety. Yet Paul says... Don't worry about anything. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Why worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not clothed like one of these beautiful flowers. Doug Oldenburg, a former president at Columbia Seminary and Presbyterian minister, said in a sermon We are not always free to determine what happens to us, but we are relatively free to choose how we will respond to what happens. Or, as someone has said, how we respond to whatever happens makes all the difference in the world. How we respond to those things that happen around us, those changes around us, makes all the difference in the world. In the midst of change, there are some things that we hold on to. One of those things is God's love. We can be sure of that. And from God's love, we also find hope. Based on the hope we find in God's love, we are able to set our attitudes towards the circumstances that surround us. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, and the courage to change the things that I can. Ernest Shackleton was a British explorer of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Just over 100 years ago, he was caught up in the race to be the first to reach the South Pole. In August of 1914, just days before the Great War, World War I, began. His ship named Endurance, wonderful name for a ship, isn't it? His ship named Endurance departed for the South Pole. Even though it was August and that was leading into the warmer season in the South, at the South Pole, the Endurance was grabbed and surrounded by ice flows in a place where there weren't supposed to be many. The crew thought that eventually the ice would dissipate and would let it go, but no, it did not. It got worse, and there was a, it was like a vice was put on the ship, and slowly and surely the ship was crushed by the ice flows, and it disappeared. The men grabbed what they could as they scampered off the ship, and they were left there literally in the middle of nowhere, no GPS, no cell phones, no things that we think are so common today, They were left on their own, hundreds of miles from anyone that could help. They made their way by Shackleton's direction. They made their way overland with the charts and the maps they had to navigate. They drug along what supplies they could, including a 20-foot boat. Eventually they came to open water and they knew that they could sail, a small group of the men over that open water, they could sail over to the South Georgia islands where, in the South Atlantic, where there were whaling stations. And so, several of the men gathered with Shackleton, leaving the others to shelter in place in a hostile environment. And in a 20-foot boat, They sailed over 800 miles to a settlement. From that settlement, then a rescue party was dispatched, and they were saved. At the time, the voyage was seen as a failure. A ship was lost, and all of the financial investment that had gone into it. Shackleton did not achieve his goal of being the first to reach the South Pole. In fact, Shackleton never reached the South Pole. But over time, the magnitude of that voyage has come to be appreciated in new ways because during that time, during the year and a half, almost two years that was involved, not a single person in that expedition crew died. All of them were saved. All of them lived to tell a tale. They had a variety of maladies, to be sure, but none of them was lost in that circumstance. Not only did they live, but you could say in a way they persevered over the harshest kind of conditions, and they triumphed. Over adversity in life. The Apostle Paul also faced a challenge when the ship that he was on ran aground. He held fast, and because of his steadfastness and his conviction, he was able to assist the ship leaders to see that their perseverance would pay off, and it did. Facing down the challenges of the elements is so obvious when you think of the story of, the Shackleton, of, the, of Shackleton and the crew of the Endurance or with Paul's Voyage. Some of us may face those kind of physical challenges in our lives or have faced them at a certain point. But there are other challenges that we may face as well that require just as much courage and just as much steadfastness. Sometimes our bodies develop diseases or conditions that rob us of mobility and vitality. Sometimes we may not have those conditions, but we stand by a loved one who does. It takes courage. It takes a lot of courage to face those circumstances, regardless of the outcome. These are not the conditions that God desires for anyone. God desires that the power of life create new life. God desires the hope of salvation, not only in the world to come, but also for us now in the present moment. We face all sorts of adversity and challenges in life. A couple of years ago, there was an influx of children on the southern border of the United States with Mexico. The Texas Baptist Men's Organization was asked to assist with the feeding of those children coming north. If you're not aware, in many states, the Baptist Men's Organization makes it their ministry to provide food services for those situations and times of disaster, hurricanes, tornadoes, other forms of, of disasters, natural and man-made. And if you, you've ever seen that or experienced that, you know that, how thankful the recipients of that ministry are. But FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, asked the Texas Baptist men to organize and to help provide meals for all of these children that came across the border. You probably you may remember the stories in the news about it. One of the realities of our common life together, though, is that the circumstances by which these children came into our nation became politicized. Even some Baptist preachers in Texas joined in, and they argued that the Texas Baptist men should not feed these children. The organization considered their situation and their council, and they put forth a statement this way. We understand this is a sensitive political issue. But remember, Texas Baptist men always respond to hurting people, especially children in a time of crisis or disaster. Make no mistake, their statement said. Make no mistake. This is a huge humanitarian disaster. How do we find the courage? to change the things that need to be changed. How do we find the courage in the face of uncertain political times or in the face of disease or in the face of circumstances about where we are? How do we find the courage to move forward and to address those things that we can? God grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change the courage to accept the things I can change, and the wisdom, the wisdom to know the difference. How do we know what is wisdom and what is foolishness? The story of Solomon provides one example. Solomon, as I shared in the first reading, was the new king. He was David's son. David had reigned as the greatest king of Israel by any measure. David's reign is the measure by which the Messiah would be prophesied. David's reign marked the children of Israel in a profound, in a very, very deep way. But David had done something that had grieved the Lord. David had abused his power and his trust by his people. David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. She was the wife of one of the officers of the army. And when David could not manipulate the situation to hide the consequences. He then arranged to have the husband of Bathsheba killed in battle. The Lord judged David and told him that he would leave the building of the temple, the place of the worship of God, to David's heir. And Solomon was that heir. So Solomon came into the rule knowing that there would be some high expectations. In a dream, he was approached by the Lord and asked what he would need to begin his reign. There were any, a number of options, but Solomon asked for only one thing, an understanding mind to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil. The serenity, the serenity prayer does not Put its request in terms of good and evil. But in that prayer, we are able to distinguish between those things that cannot be changed and those things that can be changed. We must accept that God's love and hope comes to us. We have the ability to respond because of God's love and hope to the world around us. Courage is required as we face the challenges of life. And the wisdom of Solomon is needed to distinguish between the things that cannot be changed and the things that can be changed, to set out an understanding of what is good and what is evil. But what does that look like? What does that wisdom to distinguish those things look like in the Scripture immediately after the Solomon prays for the wisdom to distinguish between good and evil. Immediately after, there is a story. You may recall it, or you may not have heard it, or it may be new to you, for it is not something that we speak of a lot, but it is a powerful story, and I'm going to read it today from the translation of the Bible known as the Message. The very next thing after this prayer, after this this vision, the very next thing Two prostitutes showed up before the king. The one woman said, My master, this woman and I live in the same house. While we were living together, I had a baby. Three days after I gave birth, this woman also had a baby. We were alone. There wasn't anyone else in the house except for the two of us. The infant son of this woman died one night when she rolled over on him in her sleep. She got up in the middle of the night and took my son. I was sound asleep, mind you, and put him at her breast and put her dead son at my breast. When I got up in the morning to nurse my son, here was this dead baby. But when I looked at him in the morning light, I saw immediately that he was not my baby. Not so, said the other woman. The living one's mine. The dead one's yours. The first one countered, no, your son's the dead one, mine's the living one. They went back and forth, back and forth in front of the king. The king said, what are we to do? This woman says the living son is mine and the dead one is yours. And this woman says, no, the dead one's yours and the living one is mine. After a moment, the king said, bring me a sword. They brought a sword to the king. Then he said, Cut the living baby in two. Give half to one and half to the other. The real mother of the living baby was overcome by emotion for her son and said, Oh, no, master. Give her the whole baby alive. Don't kill him. But the other one said, If I can't have him, you can't have him either. Cut away. The king gave his decision. Give the living baby to the first woman. Nobody is going to kill this baby. She is the real mother. The results of this are quite plain. The words, the words of the Scripture say, the word got around. Everyone in Israel heard of the king's judgment. They were all in awe of the king, realizing that it was God's wisdom that enabled him to judge truly. This scenario almost sounds good enough to be a TV reality show, you think? I mean, maybe. They didn't have DNA then and they didn't have all that CSI stuff, but yeah, there's a lot of emotions that go with that. Solomon realized that love would not change and he based his decision on his observations and the relationships that those observations revealed. The mother of the child would not let harm come to her child, no matter what. Solomon realized that that love would be the wellspring for the hope of the child. The king knew that the mother would respond in love and with hope. Losing the child in life would be better than having the child lost to death. The the mother was willing to forego her right if that was needed for the child to live. In our lives, individually and in our families, in our community, in our nation, and in our shared life here at First Presbyterian Church, we face challenges that require us to accept the things that can't change and to the courage to change the things that need to be changed. We do that with God's wisdom. What is it that will allow benefit and goodness to be in our community? How are our actions rooted in hope? Of course, it is easier to say that we accept what what can't be changed and change what we can than it is to really live that out. What do you think needs to be changed? When Martin Luther and other reformers began to point out what needed to be changed in the church, they did not intend on creating a new form of religious community. Yet their calls were protests that led to reforms. And our Presbyterian tradition comes from wanting to reform the church according to God's Word through Scripture and in Christ. We look back and find antecedents where they are, But our tradition has not been around forever. Often we identify the things that we won't change. And when we do that, we are really identifying the things we don't want to change. But no matter how much we say we hold on to what we think are really the essentials that will not change, circumstances sometimes have a way of undercutting us wisdom is needed. The story of the two women before Solomon is often used to highlight this wisdom of Solomon. He brought the matter to a head, but I have to wonder if the real wisdom in that story is not that of the king, but it is that of the woman who said, I would rather have my child have life and lose my connection to my child than to have that child split in two. That sounds a lot like something else that comes from Scripture. Matthew 10, 39, Jesus said, Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. As we live together in making decisions about the future of our own lives, as citizens of our own nation, And as participants and members in this church, let us remember this wisdom of the unnamed woman. Thanks be to God. Amen. It's been a privilege to join you this day in worship. We're glad that you were here. First Presbyterian Church seeks to serve and minister in the name of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord be kind and gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor. Go in peace as you love and serve God.